afternoon from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, Brown Dwarf Diapers. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Lawson Wilson, who will discuss the connection between depression and heart disease. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here on Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. Yeah, I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty, pretty good. <laughs> All right, excellent. Well, you know, it's good to see you every week sitting there, feeling great, looking awesome. And not pooping all over, right? <laughs> Well, few people really have controls of their bodily functions, yet somehow you maintain it. I try to, man. Well, I'm impressed. For the last I'm... 48 hours, but <laughs> do you still use diapers, Charles? I was thinking about it. Okay. Because I'm lazy. <laughs> and you might be an astronaut, right? Well, <laughs> I'm not on that kind of mission yet. <laughs> so it turns out there's actually a diaper-free uh, baby movement going on. Diaper-free baby movement. Yes. In fact, the website is diaperfreebaby.org. But there's a growing number of parents who are instructing their kids to be trained in a way that they don't need to use diapers at all. So are they trying to use the toilet or just go wherever they feel like? So basically, they train parents to read subtle signs in their children's signaling and then actually training them to make obvious signals when they need to go to the restroom. And from that, the parents will take them to a place where they can freely relieve themselves. All right. So basically uh, making a signal and saying, yeah, take me to the bathroom. They call this elimination communication. <laughs> Does it involve saying poo-poo? <laughs> no, usually it's like a hand wave or some sort of signal. I guess a number of reasons why parents want to do this. One is that, you know, diapers are irritating to many skins, and it's not the most natural way to contain the mess anyways. And if you go to a lot of rural areas in Asia and Africa, they don't use diapers, and they never right. have. All right, well, that's good. Uh, it won't promote the habit of crapping in one's pants. Addressed. Yeah. So if anyone's interested, just go to uh, diaperfreebaby.org. All right, are you a chameleon-like person? Do I just blend in? <laughs> or do you make sounds that you're not supposed to? Well, I try to speak Chinese when I was Asians, but it doesn't always work. Well, it depends which Asians. I of mean, course. are you trying to speak with uh, Thai? Uh, you know, Northern Thai, <laughs> a different kind of Thai. Well, it goes well with shirts. So it turns out, though, that brown dwarfs are mimicking pulsars. That's yeah. pretty disgusting. <laughs> Not the kind of brown dwarfs <laughs> that you were talking about in the last story. <laughs> but they are certainly emitting signals, it turns, it turns out. I see. So you may recall that brown dwarfs are the boring stars of the solar system, the one that weren't quite massive enough to ignite and cause fusion reactions to occur. Uh-huh. Recent work done at the uh, Very Large Array near uh, Socorro, New Mexico, has shown that apparently brown dwarfs can emit some signals at their poles, much like pulsars do, spinning centers. So this is quite fascinating because a long time, actually, people thought that these brown dwarfs were uninteresting, they weren't doing anything, but yet here they are making these signals. Okay. And there you go. Does this mean that they need a better way to... <laughs> Distinguish between the two types? Again, I guess the signals aren't quite as strong as pulsars just because of mass and the types of fields that are involved. Right. This was very fascinating work. It was presented a little while back at the Royal Astronomical Society National Astronomy Meeting. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. 
This is the Berkeley Rock Science Show you're listening to. Coming up next, Professor Lawson Wilson will join us to discuss the connection between depression and heart disease. Science Show. Well, depression and heart disease seem to be two widely varied and separate ailments, but new research is showing that the occurrence of depression may affect and exacerbate instances of heart disease. Well, how are depression and heart disease linked? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Lawson Woolsen. Professor Woolsen is a professor of psychiatry and family medicine at the University of Cincinnati, where he works as a clinician and researcher. Author of numerous scientific and popular works on the subject, including the weekly column Mind Matters, his new book, Treating the Aching Heart, A Guide to Depression, Stress, and Heart Disease, investigates these issues for a general audience. Dr. Woolsen, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. It's good to be here. Uh, it's certainly our pleasure, and this is, I think, a very interesting book, one which I think a lot of people might not uh, realize. that These obviously seem like very separate diseases, depression and heart disease. I'm curious if you can maybe explain a little bit about how the two are linked. The first thing to recognize, I think, that is that we're talking about two very important public health problems. Everybody knows that heart disease is the illness most likely to kill us, but what many people don't know is that depression is the illness that is most likely to disable us, not only in the U.S., but worldwide. So we're really talking about the convergence of two major public health problems. And it's only in the last 10, 15 years or so that science has really shown us what classical wisdom has known since biblical times, namely that depression contributes to heart disease. And now more recently, it's become clear that heart disease can contribute to depression. And it happens in both behavioral and biological ways. And there are many pathways that link these two diseases. There are about four or five major mechanisms that are currently unproven hypotheses, but for which we have some very promising scientific data. One is that depression alters the autonomic nervous system and changes how our heart rhythms and our breathing, all of the functions that seem to go on automatically without our thinking about them, get dysregulated in the course of depression. And that can have an effect on heart rhythms, and it can have an effect on blood pressure and the ability of the cardiovascular system to respond to severe stress. Another area that is seemingly totally unrelated is inflammation. Looks like depression really exacerbates and dysregulates the usual mechanisms by which we manage inflammation. And because heart disease is now considered to be a major inflammatory process, depression can contribute to the inflammation in the coronary arteries simply by exacerbating the length of an inflammatory response or reducing the ability of the inflammatory response to shut itself off when it needs to. Another area has to do with hormones. Depression really disrupts the usual stress hormones like adrenaline. And so in response to physical stress or mental stress, people with depression don't manage to re or get back to their 
baseline state as well. And you can imagine that elevated blood pressure or excessive rises in blood pressure can put a big strain on the vessels in the whole cardiovascular system. So those are just a few of the biological mechanisms that depression can contribute to the development of heart disease, often over 5, 10, 20 years. I understand also that uh, depression may be linked with obesity, which, of course, in turn could also uh, lead to some heart problems as well. Exactly. So obesity is one pathway, diabetes is another, but the obesity pathway is particularly interesting because it seems to happen early on in life. I mean, even in teenagers who have problems with depression or abuse are at greater risk for developing obesity, and if obesity develops in adolescence, it is significantly increases the risk for heart disease at an early age in the 40s and 50s. So there's probably a pathway that goes from depression to obesity to heart disease, just the way there's a pathway that goes from depression to diabetes to heart disease. I'm curious, are there any uh, particular risk factors for either uh, acquiring depression or its link with uh, heart disease? If you have heart disease, are you more at risk for depression? It turns out that that is true. And so that's one of the chapters of this book, Treating the Aching Heart, is talks about mechanisms and calls it a vicious cycle. There is a group of people who may not be genetically predisposed to developing depression in their 20s or 30s, which is when most people get their first depressive episode. But if they get a heart attack or some big event in their cardiovascular system, even unstable angina can do it. It looks as though there's a two to three times higher rate of developing depressive episodes in the six months following a heart attack or major chest pain episode. And that depression may be a different kind of depression than the kind that develops in the 20s or 30s well before heart disease. And particularly, the, the guess is that it may have to do with vascular depression, namely that there's some change in the way that blood flows to the parts of the brain that control mood regulation. Uh, it's complicated and we don't have all the answers yet, but it's probably a result of dysregulations in the cardiovascular system that then manifest themselves as depression or dysregulated mood. How recognized is this link between depression and heart disease in the medical community? Well, that's a good question, and it's the major reason why I thought a book like this needed to be written, because there's a small group of researchers in the psychosomatic medicine field or the mind-body medicine field that have been working on this area for the last couple of decades, really, for whom this is old news. But I'm a psychiatrist, and I work with a lot of primary care doctors and cardiologists many of whom may intuitively understand that there's a link here, but don't in practice screen for depression in everybody with heart disease, don't initiate treatment for depression in people whom they identify as having depression after a heart attack, and don't monitor the outcomes of their treatment for depression, particularly well in the post-heart attack period, all of which means that people with depression and heart disease don't get recognized as frequently as they ought to and don't get treated as well as often as they ought to and don't have as good outcomes as they ought to. If you're someone who's suffering from uh, depression, what warning signs should you be looking for as far as how it might be affecting your heart? Well, I think the first thing to begin with is the recognition that depression is a psychological, social, and especially a physical problem. And so one of the first things that depressed people need to learn is what are the physical dimensions of their depression? For some people it's fatigue, for others it's difficulty with appetite or change in gait or change in their voice or change in muscle strength. And for others it's a difficulty reacting to stress. Many of these physical manifestations are not very well measured by most people or by their physicians. But the first thing that I think patients should do is recognize what the physical dimensions of their depression are and then they ought to 
get a good, clear estimate about what cardiac risk factors they've got. So somebody with depression who has very few cardiac risk factors and is 40 years old probably doesn't need to worry very much about it. But if you're a smoker and you're overweight and diabetes runs in your family, a depressive episode is much more likely to lead to heart disease than if you've got none of those risk factors. Are there any good treatments if you have depression in terms of mitigating a risk for heart disease? Yeah. And here the good news is that what's good for your heart is good for your brain. Exercise is a really good treatment for heart disease, as we all know. And exercise is also a good treatment for depression. Uh, many people don't recognize that there have been some good studies showing that moderate exercise, as little as 30 minutes of vigorous walking three times a week, can have a significant effect on reducing symptoms and improving functioning in people who've got depression and don't take any medicine or do any psychotherapy. So just by itself, exercise can be a good treatment for depression. It's also very effective for heart disease. And so it's a common part of every heart disease rehabilitation program. Another example of what's good for the heart, good for the brain, is fish oil supplements or omega-3 supplements. Two to three grams of omega-3 supplements are very effective at lowering triglycerides and reducing inflammation that's associated with heart disease. It is also a good treatment for depression, and particularly bipolar depression. So taking omega-3 supplements is a good thing for people who've got both depression and heart disease. Exercise is also good. Relaxation training, very effective for people who are trying to manage the stressful aspects of depression and very good for getting the cardiovascular system under control. If people are curious about what sort of sources they can go to to identify their problems and read treatment plans, what would you recommend? Well, of course, the first thing I would recommend is that you read my book. <laughs> and the easy way to find it is through my website, which is www.lawsonwolson.com. That's L-A-W-S-O-N-W-U-L-S-I-N.com. But I think the, the most important piece of advice is to go to your primary care doctor. Find a good primary care doctor who can treat both learn about what depression is as well as heart disease because these are long-standing conditions for most people and it's really important to take a participating or even a leading role in changing lifestyle and managing these risks. Any depressant treatment is good for depression. It is also good for one of the mechanisms that links depression and heart disease and that is increased coagulability or stickiness of the blood, the tendency to form blood clots. You know, heart attacks are usually precipitated by blood clots breaking off in the coronary arteries. And antidepressants, SSRIs in particular, seem to have a good protective effect against that kind of blood clotting, the stickiness of blood that comes with as a byproduct of depression. Depression makes blood more sticky. Antidepressants makes them less sticky and less likely to break off and causing heart attacks. So I think there are a number of specific things that people can do finding a, a primary care doc, reading a good book that summarizes these issues, using exercise, omega-3, antidepressants uh, where appropriate. It's a very treatable pair of conditions. Right, right. Depression still sort of has a taboo in terms of talking about it. Do you think that that's changing, that people are becoming more open in terms of talking about depressive-type conditions? No question. Just in the last five years or so, there's been a significant improvement in the number of resources available on the internet for screening for heart disease, for measuring for them, and in national recognition of the importance of depression as one of the common chronic conditions that costs our society a lot, contributes to death, particularly through heart disease, and accounts for a large amount of disability. So we're not where we ought to be, but 
things have gotten a whole lot better in the last five to ten years in this country. The taboo is still quite strong in the rest of the world, and stigma about mental illness is still quite strong. So there's lots of work to be done, but I, I think we've come a long way, particularly in the area of depression, and that's one of the reasons that I was intrigued about writing this book, because I think that if we can get it right on depression and heart disease, two of the most common, expensive, lethal, and treatable illnesses, then we might be able to apply these principles to other mental illnesses and other physical illnesses for better treatment of the mind-body interface. I think it really needs to be done to bring this issue to the fore, like public health issues. Mm. The last chapter of my book is called A Call for Change, and it lists six major interventions that we really need to do. The first, I think, is that we need to establish a policy of screening for depression all patients with heart disease. The second is I think we need to establish a mechanism for evaluating depressed patients in cardiac settings, in coronary care units, in heart centers. You know, there are lots of heart centers around the country. Very few of them have a systematic way of assessing and providing at least initial treatment for people with heart disease and depression. The third is we really need to get the community mental health centers doing a better job of identifying patients with cardiac risk factors. In other words, we've got to do better on both sides of the street here and recognizing the risks for the other illness. I think we need a better public health education effort on the part of the American Heart Association and the National Institute of Mental Health, the National Mental Health Association, the organizations that are really charged with raising the awareness of the public need to do a better job of making people understand what these conditions do to each other and how to get treatment. And finally, on a federal level, I think we really need a well-funded research initiative that can tease out the remaining key questions about these two illnesses, specifically, who are the people who are most at risk and what treatments are most efficient for reducing those risks early and for a long time. Hmm. Well, it certainly sounds like an ambitious set of goals, but it can be done, yeah. It's ambitious because it's a big public health problem and it's not going to go away, and it really only represents the most visible part of the iceberg of the relationship between mental illness and physical illness. Mm. You sort of see this issue from both sides uh, as a clinician and as a researcher. Do you have any particular perspective from these two angles? Well, my clinician's perspective is is that you don't see it if you're not looking for it. Mm. But when you do find it, it's very gratifying because you can really prevent what turns out to be a fairly disabling and lethal combination. And the other thing that's gratifying is that, you know, both of these illnesses tend to run in families. So if you work in a primary care setting like I do in a family practice clinic mostly, you really have access to other people who are likely to be at similar risks. And so you can do very effective prevention if you can identify the people who are really suffering with this combination of risks at an early age. From a research point of view, I find this fascinating because it's the best mind-body story that science has to tell at this point. We know the most about depression and we know a lot about heart disease and we've made a lot of progress on the public health awareness about these two illnesses. But as I mentioned earlier, there are lots of possible mechanisms that link these two. And probably the most fascinating that I did not mention is genetics. It's very possible that depression and heart disease share some common genetic vulnerabilities that we haven't defined yet. And so uh, involved in a project to look at the genes in people who have had recent strokes as well as a problem with depression at some time in their lives 
to try to identify whether or not there are some common genes among people who are at risk for stroke and people who are at risk for depression that might be, help us be able to figure out how those two might be genetically linked right from the start. I guess we are running slightly out of time, but I'm curious maybe to close if you could just distill a a message for people out there, uh, what to look for and uh, what to pay attention for regarding uh, both depression and heart disease. Well, I think the most important message is that even though these are two very common and serious problems, they're also easy to recognize if you're looking for them. If you know your risks and you've got a primary care doctor, that's the essential first step. Treatments for depression are very effective, even in people with heart disease, and treatments for heart disease will make it a lot easier to treat depression. So the earlier you can catch either illness and its attendant risks for the other illness, the more likely you are to be able to avoid having to treat the big events like heart attacks uh, much later. And because these are usually chronic conditions, the changes that you make now to correct the problem will probably have to be sustained over many years, if not decades. And so it really involves understanding the illness as well, working with somebody who you trust, and staying on treatments that work effectively for you. Well, I think those are certainly good words of advice, and uh, I hope a lot of people will go out and take a look at your book, which is, of course, Treating the Aching Heart, A Guide to Depression, Stress, and Heart Disease. Dr. Woolson, thank you very much for joining us today on uh, the Grok Science Show. It's a pleasure talking with you, Charlie. And you were just listening to Professor Lawson Wilson talking about the connection between heart disease and depression. Coming up in just a few minutes is the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. It is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, depressing or uplifting? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know whether they're depressing or uplifting, and uh, maybe a little reason why. Dr. Wilson, you ready to play a game? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Depressing or uplifting, person number one, Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds. (laughs) (laughs) That's a tough one. I'd call him uplifting in the long haul. In the short haul, maybe not, but I think he'll uh, earn his place in history, and he's up, he's done a lot of uplifting, at least until a few years ago. All right. <laughs> All right, number two is Paris Hilton. Well, you got me a little bit ignorant there. I've seen she's been in the news a lot lately for bad stuff, so I <laughs> guess she would, might be depressing, or she might even be depressed herself. <laughs> well, number three is uh, the famed humanitarian, Albert Schweitzer. Uplifting. Um, number four, Tiger Woods. Uplifting. What a, a guy who goes after challenges, and good is not good enough. He goes for perfection without breaking his spirit. Or I, I think he's really uplifting. Certainly uplifting to watch, anyway. Right. What a performance. <laughs> right. Uh, and finally, number five, the president of the United States, George Bush. 
Oh, I'm sorry to confess to you. I find I find his story is depressing. <laughs> and uh, even without uh, my political bent, he started out with so much promise. And resignation of Karl Rove Day, I think, <laughs> is just another sign that the man is increasingly isolating himself from a world that really greeted him with open arms when he got elected to office. So I'm sorry he's on the depressing side of that equation. Yeah, I think a lot of people are equally sorry that that's the case, but... Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Wolves, and I do want to thank you for uh, sticking around playing our game. My pleasure. And, of course, talking to us about your book, again, that is Treating the Aching Heart, A Guide to Depression, Stress, and Heart Disease. Thank you. And Forrest here, and the answer to last week's question of the week, what is the Stokes Law? Well, you know, when round objects, these spherical things, flow in low renal number fluids, they get some friction, and the Stokes Law tells you how to find that friction. Dobby, help master. Dobby, good. Dobby, fluoresce with green fluorescent protein. Yes, master. Yes. But if you know how Dobby fluoresce, you email grocks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win, but you, Master Harry. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grocks, you can email us at grocks at hotmail.com. Berkeley Grocks, I'm Frank Lee. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grocks.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. <laughs> <laughs>